Hi, Derek, and welcome to the Banter Roundtable podcast. Uh, just finished reading your book, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. Um, it's based on your podcast that you co-host with Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker. And it's it's really a breathtaking piece of work that you should be immensely proud of. Um, and I wanted to just chat to you a little bit about the origins of A, the podcast, and B, the book. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, love the banter and read it whenever I get in my inbox and always like talking to you. So great. Great to be Thank here. You. So the podcast, you began the podcast at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, May 2020, the week that pandemic came out was the week we started uh, the podcast uh, semi-officially two weeks later is when we named it and started it but Matthew and Julian joined me on my old podcast to discuss pandemic and out of our conversation we realized there was so much to talk about that we just continued the conversation and it became conspirituality did you realize what you were getting yourself into when you began the podcast in some capacities because we had all been doing this work for years, many years. Uh, Julian and I had started a website in 2012 called Yoga Brains that actually discussed some of the same topics. Matthew had been doing his own work and he was a contributor to Yoga Brains. So, you know, eight years before this, we had been generally talking about the lack of political engagement. And from my perspective, the pseudoscience that's rampant in wellness circles what I think was different was that we had a very small following at the time because people just weren't that interested or mostly they didn't see that there was a problem coming from these wellness spaces because of the fuel that the pandemic gave us and the fact that everyone was locked inside and had a lot more time to listen to podcasts, I think is what created the success of the podcast overall. Now that said, just as we've got grown our listener base uh, to levels that I had never really dreamed possible, uh, we also have plenty of criticisms and pushbacks. So I was prepared to discuss the topics because, as I said, we'd all been doing that. But I think the overall momentum surprised me and the rampant trolling and criticism that has followed and continues to this day uh, did catch me a little off guard, but overall, uh, in hindsight, I can see how that happened as well. So you say in the book that you were fairly immersed in the fitness yoga world and, and maybe would it be fair to say that you bought into some, at least some of the mystical beliefs that were floating around? Um, but you write that you got diagnosed with cancer in your mid-30s and that you've essentially shunned by the yoga community who um they essentially blamed you for your own illness is that would that be a fair summation uh, some people some people i think overall uh, we both as we discussed uh, previously when you were on conspirituality we both worked at equinox in los angeles and i think one of the good things that i personally took from being at Equinox for 17 years, first in New York and then in Los Angeles, is that unlike a lot of traditional yoga or wellness spaces, you had a wide range of people who went there. So you didn't get as much into the pseudoscience. You got some of it. Uh, so all that said, I was embedded in the Los Angeles yoga community, but I also had a lot of, all of my classes were at Equinox. So I didn't get a lot of the sort of, 
cancer blaming or the holistic idealism, like don't do chemotherapy sort of mindset from my immediate public and the people that I was training and teaching. But from the broader community, when I went outside of that, you would hear that type of language that you could instead use juices or shamanic cleanses for cancer instead of having to go through chemotherapy. So I would say there was some of that, but definitely not the overriding message. And I, I'm pretty thankful for that because I can imagine someone immersed in those communities without having a lot of doctors and nurses for as students, for example, as I did, uh, you, you would have a much different experience than I did. So to what extent would you say that you bought into some of the more, what you would now regard as conspiracy theory, new age fad nonsense? I think I, I was much more involved in that in college in the mid nineties. At that time I was both taking a lot of psychedelics and I was also studying religion, which is what I got my degree in, but my focus and emphasis was on Eastern religions. And so at that time, I, when you're, when you're having an LSD or a psilocybin experience weekly for a year and a half, as I did, uh, sometimes more than once a week, and you're around all these people with these ideologies, you get very embedded in this sense of mysticism and in very deeply inflated sense of your own self-worth and ego to degrees that I don't think are healthy. Uh, that said, I'm also kind of fortunate in the sense that I've had so many injuries throughout my life that I spent enough time in the medical system and in hospitals. And I actually lived in a hospital for a while. And then I ended up working in that same hospital in the emergency room for two years during college. So I, I feel very fortunate that even though I was in this mindset where I was learning about yoga, learning about philosophy, taking psychedelics, thinking about mysticism and what could have led to conspiratorial thinking, I was also working shifts in a hospital where I was around doctors and nurses, and I trusted them because I, as I said, lived in that same hospital and they had taken care of me. Uh, so I feel by the time that I got out of there and I became a reporter, which is what I did for a number of years after college, when you have to actually corroborate information and talk to a range of people, a range of experts, uh, I think that helped pull me out of that that mindset. Uh, although being in the New York City yoga community in the early aughts, I was still kind of dabbling in both worlds. But over time, as especially as I became a health and science reporter, uh, that I think finally shifted me away from a lot of the mysticism that was involved with um, with the communities that I was in. So there's another part in the book that says, um, I'll quote here, it says, it took Derek 15 years to leave the fad diet hamster wheel as he realized that wellness world fat shaming was a professionalized and socially acceptable form of bullying. Uh, and I would say that that's something that I personally saw as well um, in that world. I you know, worked at Equinox uh, for many, many years in Los Angeles. And the obsession with fitness and nutrition, and um, it becomes its own world and it becomes a kind of a, a there are like hierarchies of who who is the purest right who who is the most you know dedicated to their fitness regime and dedicated to drinking protein shakes at you know six in the morning or whatever, whatever it is uh how long would you say it took you to pull yourself out of that world uh specifically with my eating disorder which is what the 15 years references is i had orthorexia and again talk about living in two worlds. I grew up overweight. Uh, one side of my family is 
pretty, pretty much all overweight. And I've just dealt with that for, for most of my youth. But even though I was the chubby kid who was picked on a lot and bullied, I also played sports my entire life. So it was kind of weird because my teammates would bully me outside of the sports, but I was also good at sports. So then I could hold my own. So I had this really weird relationship with my peer group in that when I was chosen for teams, I wasn't the last kid. I was often among the first because I was very good at what I was doing, but I was also overweight. So then I would go to be with them in other situations where I was treated very differently. Uh, eventually, I grew a lot, grew taller, and that really kind of thinned me out. And I got very into fitness and weightlifting and all the other modalities that I ended up teaching. And, but that sort of, I, I, trauma is a, a difficult word sometimes, but you definitely are traumatized when you're bullied a lot as a kid. And that stayed with me into my 20s and 30s. And being in yoga, while you had mentioned earlier the mystical ideologies, which I was able to abandon, but the health ones weren't as easy. And so being at Equinox, for example, you know all of their marketing is guys with ripped abs and large pecs and biceps. And that's part of their brand is this, this image and that's fitness overall. And so there I am as one of their main instructors teaching 20 classes a week, but I did not look like the people that they were marketing as what they were. And so that, that just was kind of a continuation. So I had this like very fitness industry mindset that I was involved with. And then I had this yoga world mindset because I was also practicing in yoga studios like Jiva Mukti in New York City. And there was this idea, you mentioned the word pure, and purity is very big in this, this idea that there are pure diets. Uh, I even taught at Pure Yoga, which is owned by Equinox in New York for a while. So this, this idea perpetuates in that industry. And so that just constantly kept me in this mindset of, always trying to optimize and maximize my workouts instead of where I've landed now in my later forties at this point, which is just enjoying my workouts and enjoying my food. But it took a, it took a long time to get out of that mindset and to stop worrying about the actual look of my body and start to really focus on what my body could actually accomplish and do, and just to stay healthy and enjoy it instead of always uh, growing anxious around whether or not I was lifting enough or whether or not my abs looked correct. Do, do you think that some of what you described there is why people are so vulnerable to conspiracy theories? I think that there is a definite correlation between self-perception and the willingness to fall into conspiratorial mindsets. And part of that is the religious mindset. People love to be or to feel like they're in an inside group or they have some secret knowledge. And if you are someone who lacks self-worth in some capacity, and you know, uh, I had so many great students at Equinox, but I'm, as I'm sure you experienced with perhaps some of your clients, uh, people who had fantastic bodies were never good enough to themselves. They were very vulnerable. I, I saw people with they were model ready. They could have been on an Equinox poster and yet they needed to lose another 10 pounds. They needed to push this workout harder. Uh, I saw eating disorders play out all the time in real time, even though it was never mentioned, you can tell some of the signs and you see it in people. And that vulnerability 
when you lack that, when you have a charismatic leader or someone that has some sort of power and they come in and they, they come in with this confidence and charisma and you'll listen to them, they can easily sway people into all sorts of ideologies, especially if it fulfills some lack in their life. Uh, what was I reading? Uh, I'm, I'm working on a new book on media literacy and I'm, I'm revisiting uh, Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan, old media literacy books. And I think it was McLuhan who said that advertising isn't about selling the best product. It's about identifying the lack in people and then selling that to them. And that's what I think, that's where I think conspiracy theories can slip in because if you're lacking in something and someone says they have the answer and you open up and start listening to them, well, that's a dangerous rabbit hole that you're entering at that point. That actually brings me right into the next question I, I have for you, which is about charisma. And there's one of the major themes in the book is charisma and how powerful a tool it can be when it comes to manipulating sometimes very intelligent people. Um, and would you say that that is the defining feature of a, of a successful um, conspiritualist, or, or is there like is there another magic ingredient, or is there a combination of magic ingredients that that creates this sort of um, I would say fairly te- toxic effect on people? I would say charisma in the traditional sense of cult leaders or le- or charismatic figures uh, is very important. Because in what we call brick and mortar spaces like yoga studios, charisma is all that matters. You're in the presence of someone. And if that person can capture your attention there, then that's it. Then they've, they've got you. So I would say that in, in the old school traditions, that's true. It's a little bit different now because you can capture attention with videos or memes. You don't necessarily need the charisma. I, I think that a lot of the conspiratorists we covered are charismatic. They create sharply edited videos and they're, they look good and sound good on screen, but that's a little bit different and that's not a requirement anymore. So I think there's a lot more room for less charismatic people who have a good understanding of psychology and how to manipulate people through editing and through social media is a whole other field that we have to contend with at this point. Uh, but uh, but overall, charisma, regardless of the situation, if you're trying to pull people into, say, conferences and live events or workshops, then when they get there, the charisma is still going to matter for a level of trust. But it's not the only ingredient anymore. What, what is it specifically about charisma? Do you think it, is it play into people's insecurities about themselves that they've got someone who seems to have it all figured out? Like, wh- what is charisma? Uh, and how do you how do you sell it? It's affect, and that's that's actually one of the challenges that I'm I'm right before we got on this call. I'm working on the introduction of my book, and I have it all mapped out already. But as I'm as I'm working through it, the one important point that goes through this is that affect or, or the emotions that you're bringing up in people are the driver of the information they're willing to ingest and believe in. So that. A charismatic leader will be able to tap into an emotional response in people. And I do think what you identified there is important. It's identifying a lack in people. I remember even during that phase when I was more malleable to mystical ideas, I was the religion reporter at the Delhi Targum at Rutgers where I went to school. And 
I was asked to cover an event by this guy named Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. So not the sitar player, but uh, another guy who's younger. I mean, Ravi Shankar is obviously dead, but this one is still going. He still has his meditation workshops and I don't know how much of a cult leader he is or if he has that, but I just remember being in the room and he did a series of breathing exercises and then everyone lined and gave a Dharma talk and then everyone lined up to kind of go to him and he would like touch them or whatever. And this is in suburban New Jersey in 1995. And even then I remember like really feeling something from the breathing exercises, but from my familiarity with yoga, I'm like, that's not, that uncommon it's it's not that he did that to us he just primed our nervous system so that when he gave the talk he you would be more open to hearing and you think that the affect that was created through your nervous system is because of him and that's a leader that's a technique that that cult leaders do use and i just remember looking around the room and seeing how people were fawning over him and even then my my radar was up i'm like that was cool but there's no reason to fawn over every, anyone like that. And it was really sort of one of my introductions to seeing how these people can operate in the spaces. And it's all because of putting people in the right mindset and then capturing their attention and then holding that attention. Uh, that's, I think, one of the main uh, techniques that we identify in the book. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's taught martial arts for, for years and years and years, I've I've seen that play out that whole dynamic play out in my own classes where you get people you know they're warmed up this they're running around they're jumping up and down and they're getting involved with stuff and, and you have to kind of motivate them and you have to bark instructions and you have to correct them and and i, I always notice this um that there's a certain look that some students give you when they're like hanging on your every word like you know like i'm an ascended master who's in a kind of infallible and i'm a you know and I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors about myself, which I know not to be true, about how good, how how what an amazing martial artist I was, which I know not to be true. Um, <laughs> I'm well aware of my own my own capabilities, uh, but I recognize that dynamic and how dangerous it could be if you weren't. You know, I always imagine my my mum in my ear telling me to shut up. Um, and and stop talking and stop thinking that you're you know <laughs> uh, not getting carried away with myself. Uh, so that's what kind of keep that. That's what always kept me kind of my my ego in check. I would say, but but martial arts studios are interesting. I'm sorry for interrupting, but martial arts studios are interesting in that everyone that I've practiced at, I've noticed that you get your introductory or free session. It's usually with one of the higher tier teachers and on the way out, they're going to try to get you to sign up for multiple months. They're going to try to get an annual package out of you because they know that they just worked you and you feel really good. And they immediately, and I don't think I've ever practiced in a studio that didn't have that sort of model, even though I've tried different disciplines before. So I, I wouldn't say that that's that much different, that that attention capture, right? You're putting people in a certain physical slash emotional state, and then you're immediately trying to get them Help into your downline. Yeah, I, worked, I did. I was the sales rep for Krav Maga uh, for, a, for a, one of the sales rep for Krav Maga in Los Angeles. And that was one of the things I did was I would teach the intro class and then try to sell them. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, this does not, 
I do, I do not feel comfortable doing this at all. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not actually a very good salesperson. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, do you want to do this or not? I don't really care whether you do or you don't. But um, so not not a great salesperson. But that was yeah, I was sort of picked to to, to do that. Um, but I just remember, like I've you know, the, for as long as I've been teaching martial arts, I I try to be as responsible as I can with that power that you get when you're an authority figure and I, and I, it seems to me that a lot of the people that you cover in the book and on your podcast is you know the rose gallery of conspiritualists just abuse that power they they've rec- they've seen this they've tasted some i don't know what, what they get uh, the high they get off manipulating people and having people hang on their every word uh and they are making you know in some cases millions of dollars out of this yeah I mean, uh I don't know if it's always manipulation. I think so, so. I think sometimes it's very much manipulation, but I do think what cuts across all of them is adoration, right? They're definitely questing for that feeling of eyeballs on them and where it goes from there can be different on the individual, but that's something that cuts across all of them. Um, so you, everyone that you uh, covered, we talked about this Rose Gully, would you say that there's, a, a one that stands out, a uniquely dangerous conspiritualist in terms of their reach and their popularity or their impact. Yeah, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I mean, he, like we we wrote that chapter seven months before publication. It was one of the last chapters we wrote, and this was well before there was any talk about his presidential run. So the fact that our book comes out a couple weeks after he announces and then, you know, we get coverage, we get a, we write a piece for time magazine we get a coverage in the New York times and guardian covered us on this was just indicative of the fact that we can see these trends and we point out that they're gaining. We, we talk a lot about their impact on public health, which is obvious because of the anti-vax movement, but the fact that we're getting covered seriously politically now is indicative of the fact of the influence that these spaces have created for people to be able to ascend to such levels. And RFK, I mean, he now has as one of his directors, uh, communications director, Charles Eisenstein, who has his own chapter. He has a, uh, he had a health policy round table where it was him saying, this is what I'm going to do when I, when my administration and he has Mickey Willis on there and he has, uh, Joe Mercola on there. So more figures like our book is basically a template for RFK's administrative idealism. So that, that to me, he, the, the, these figures have centralized around him. And so he, his manipulation prowess is unmatched and I don't think it's just his own charisma. I think there's a number of forces working to come to make that happen. But the fact that we were able to write about that and then watching it actually play out in a way we didn't even predict uh, has been kind of astounding to us. So you mentioned two characters there, Mickey Willis and Charles Eisenstein, who two of the people that you write about in the book. And Mickey Willis, for people who don't know, is the, pers- is the guy who's a filmmaker from Ojai, California, who... Uh, he was the director or creator of the Plandemic documentary. That would be another extremely illustrative example of a charismatic 
he's a model in the book you say he's gaze right inappropriate gaze that he stares too long into the camera but then you've got on the other side you've got charles eisenstein charles eisenstein is his own, is an interesting character as well because he you know he i've, I've spoken to charles i had him on a podcast uh, a few years ago uh, and found him to be quite interesting and then the pandemic hit and then i realized okay you know he's no he's not actually as interesting as i thought he was um but he does have uh he is speaking to this other demographic right he's he's managing to pull in a sort of more in- intellectual new ager i got to say faux intellectual when it comes to eisenstein i mean to yeah. his credit he came on to our podcast he was the only person we ever criticized that came on and we've invited a number of them and he came on for two episodes with Matthew. Uh, this is well before his comments that got him kicked off of his publisher. And this is well before he has embedded in the Austin community around Aubrey Marcus now mm-hmm. and before he was involved in RFK. But uh, he he is an interesting one. But going back, I mean, some people have have taken to his to his sacred economics and things like that. And then just this week, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, who is someone I've known for a long time back from back in New York and Charles Eisenstein, we were all involved in the same networks and Mickey Willis. I was involved in the same network. So these are all people that I've either worked with before or been involved with. And it's been interesting to see all the different directions that they go as this broader space continues to push out. Um, I, I think that, Every time I hear Charles, he he just reminds me a bit of that that sort of galaxy brain who's trying to make connections between all of these things, but doesn't actually have the journalistic chops or the academic chops to do it. And so it all kind of meanders and falls flat in in my in my opinion. Mickey Willis is more polished. Uh, he he is a credible filmmaker. He has worked on a number of things. He I don't he's not from Ojai, but he did live there when I when I. Worked on a festival that he was involved with. That's where he was based, and he is much better at creating media manipulation because he's mm. been working in that industry for so long. So he is definitely he's more astute, and he presents much better. And that that eye gaze. He's someone who we've noticed even on film can do that, where he has these piercing eyes, and he'll just stare right in the camera as if he's looking at you. So uh, you know. Eisenstein is a little more rumpled in general, but he still has influence and he still, people are still listening to him. So I won't deny that. Yeah. I remember interviewing Charles and he came to um, the studio that we were recording in and I, having met him in person um, and interviewed him for, we did, I think we did like an hour and a half podcast with him or two hour podcast that the shitstorm that's about to happen with uh, RFK and his Holocaust comments and the, COVID was bioengineered to uh, spare Jews and Chinese people. This guy is uniquely unprepared for this kind of warfare that, that is real politics, like the, you know, real campaigning uh, and not going on Oprah Winfrey and um, talking about your new book are two, these are two completely different things. And I would say that Charles is, is very ill-suited to, uh, that was just my impression. Um, well, Charles is also Jewish, but he was kicked off of North Atlantic Books for some anti-Semitic remarks, right? So, it, yeah. it, he's 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 very he's very interesting in that sense. There's something that a lot of these conspiracies have in common. It's almost like a network of the currency is charisma, and they mm-hmm. you know they get on each other's podcasts and they 
gaze into each other's eyes and <laughs> you know, it, it, it's very strange it's almost like a you're involved in a kind of a seance or something when you kind of see them talking to each other i i find the whole spectacle now to be and i would say a lot part a lot in thanks to your podcast which has sort of given me i would say and a lot of people who i know it's almost like a vaccine um and that's one of the reasons i would rec highly recommend people read the book and and listen to your podcast is that people are very susceptible to this kind of thing and i probably myself included um but your podcast is, is sort of like an antidote to this stuff it gives you a way of protecting yourself from the bullshit one thing we try to do in the book is point out the network effects that happen with with what you're identifying with how these people move through these spaces and how they connect and work with one another, which is a very common technique. And one thing that I'm thinking seriously a lot about, you know, like we have this podcast, we have a three year deal with Glassbox, we're going to keep going there. We don't know about another book, but I know we're all authors and I'm working on this. As I said, I was working on a book on male body dysmorphia, which I'm going to continue with. But this other idea came into my head because I start thinking about how can you help people? Don't tell them the exact answers, but I'm thinking about my own journalistic process. So that's what the book is about. I'm taking like 10 or 11 different topics from different stuff we've covered and I'm going through my own process of investigation to show how I arrive at the conclusions that I do. And that's what the, it's a short book that kind of spells that out because McLuhan talks about this a lot, which is that with these media forms, it's, you can, you can fall for the content and just believe it wholeheartedly. But the real power comes when you are able to teach people how to think. Not what yeah. to think, but how to think. And I know, I know this is something that like Jordan Peterson, for example, says a lot, but I think it's bullshit coming from him because he never actually gives you insight into his processes because he's constantly telling you what to think. One mm. thing that I hope distinguishes our work and what we're trying to do is just show the processes and techniques so that you can think about them on your own to be able to better assess your own understanding of the situations you're in. Even before we started recording here, we were both talking about some own, our own health issues and we're like going through the fact that the Western medical system has given us some good things, but it's also been a little bit dicey and we've found some other good ideas from the quote unquote alternate spaces. And so it's, it's not a binary in these situations. And a lot of times we're accused of only brokering in binaries and I don't believe, or we try our best not to. And so being able to empower people with their own skills to be able to assess through all of this, I think is the most important thing that we're trying to offer uh, rather than just saying, believe this, because that doesn't really work very well because then you'll create your own little, you know, insular communities, which is not, a goal that any of us are trying to do. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the general impression I got from the book. How you'd structured it was a very, almost like a, a journey from belief to, to disbelief and show people how the, how it works. I mean, and that's one of the most important things is to have these analytical tools is to see what these people, what, what techniques and strategies these charismatic people are, are using. And, and, that, and that's very much the sense that the, the, the book gave me. But anything you write on it, obviously, we'd, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to promote as well, because that's one of the big things that we, we try to do, too, is taking a news story and, and trying to help people think through these issues, think through the, a journalistic process or how you source, you know, how you source evidence, how you evaluate evidence, that kind of thing, uh, which is the exact opposite of what 
conspiritualists do. Well, they tell you they tell you what to think, right? So that's another uh, part that I think was important in the book was this. That there's a distrust of institutions, right? Of Fauci and the World Health Organization and the CDC and uh, and Big Pharma. But what are they? What's the alternative? Not applying any scrutiny whatsoever to their list of herbs or pills that they're selling you at the end of the Instagram reel. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll point out that earlier this year, I presented to the World Health Organization about the conspirituality work, and I talked to about 40 people there, and I was really kind of shocked in the Q&A when they were asking me how to identify misinformation and to combat it online, because I'm kind of like, well, you're the agency that's supposed to be doing this work, but I also understand it because that's part of the challenge of legacy institutions is the fact that the networks with which this inf information or misinformation are now running through are being conducted in ways that a lot of the older institutions aren't accustomed to because they're very, they're very used to how media and science literacy operated a generation ago when a lot of them were learning it. And I think what you were asking there with the conspiritualists what they understand very well, and they do tend to lean right politically very often, is that they're able to capture attention and hold attention in these spaces in such a way, often through one example we covered extensively with Russell Brand, and RFK is now doing the same exact thing, is by screaming censorship. I'm being censored. I'm being censored, Joe Rogan, as 11 million people download this <laughs> compared to the news organizations that have a couple hundred thousand followers that they're being censored by. But they're able to create this fervor in people who feel disempowered. A lot of the times, especially I, I see this often on Twitter with people who reply to when I'm posting about Bobby Kennedy, is they're like, he's standing up for the little man. And I'm like, he's a Kennedy. Like, and it's not like anything a Kennedy says can't be true or actually be standing up for people, but this, this, this sort of uh, ability that these networks have of making someone like Elon Musk seem relatable, like people are just like, like they would actually want to have anything to do with you on a one-to-one -one basis in person. And yet the parasocial relationships that are formed through these networks where they think they're actually standing up for them, not just monetizing them in some capacity is really disorienting. And I think that that is what conspiritualists have figured out, right? I always say on the podcast, watch what they say, then watch what they sell because you'll have someone like a JP Sears who I cover often, who will say all the healthcare institutions are bullshit don't trust your doctors. Oh, here's my CBD company. And it can do these 10 things that'll really improve your health. And so he's probably monetizing it very well. You'll have a Paul Saladino partnering with Liver King saying that plants are terrible for you, but buy our testicle powder. And they ancestral supplements did $100 million in revenue last year because they are able to capture on that disempowerment or feeling of disempowerment that people have in their own lives and then sell things to them. And that is the most common technique or tactic that we see in these spaces. So you talk a lot about where this stuff fits in with capitalism and what you refer to as late stage capitalism. 
And what is the intersection? Is it is this purely a sort of a byproduct of late stage capitalism? Do you think? It's a little trickier, uh, and I always say that because the three of us as co-hosts and co-authors have differing views on on things. Uh, I would say late stage capitalism is something Matthew talks about a lot. I, I'm not as sold on the concept. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea that that we've reached the final the final stages of capitalism, and then at some point, I, I am extremely um, critical of how capitalism plays out. And I'm critical of Bobby Kennedy's free market capitalism ideology in terms of healthcare and climate change, for example. Uh, but let's just let's just say capitalism overall. Uh, mm. It's the it's the ocean that we're all swimming in. Um, you know, one thing I found very interesting researching for this media literacy book is that from its inception, news has always been monetized. Like capitalism and advertising and marketing were ground zero for news. And in the book, I'm calling it monetized gossip because that's essentially what news grew out of was the ability to take gossip that was going on from different places and monetizing it in a way that you were able to sell it to kings and rulers and then eventually to people through newspapers. That took centuries to get to. So we have been in this process of figuring out how to capture people's attention and sell it to them, sell that, sell ideas to them for about seven centuries now under what we call news. Uh, what the, what conspiritualists have figured out though, are ways to sell services and products to people because of distrust institutions like healthcare and you know, we also have a chapter in the book called Conspiritualists Are Not Wrong because they start from ver from places that we agree with. Our for-profit healthcare system in America is horrible. It's broken in so many ways. Pharma lobbying and direct-to-consumer advertising and television and online in America is terrible for people. It is not the type of way to build trust with people you're trying to heal or to help. And so it starts in good places, but then it goes into unregulated industries like supplements, which is one of the main sales vehicles that conspiritualists have. And then you have situations where people are buying products that haven't been tested, that haven't been vetted, that we don't know that whether or not they do what they do or they're purported to do. And there's no real teeth to the FTC or the FDA overlooking these industries. And so you have a situation where they're capitalizing on the distrust of institutions, but what they're offering isn't actually a replacement for those institutions, but it makes them very rich. Right. And, and that's a funny position I've found myself to be. I'm now, I'm now a defender of Bill Gates and the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> right. I never thought I'd find myself in this position, which obviously I'll have my, I mean, you know, in all seriousness, I have like very serious issues with the pharmaceutical industry, um, big pharma, and Bill Gates. Um, I think that that he it's a mixed bag with a lot of this stuff, and the World Health Organization. There are many of these institutions that I have serious issues with, but because of conspiritualists, they they've distorted the debate in such a grotesque way that. There's really no way you you, you know. We're, I feel like we're knowing that either you're with them or against them. 
Um, and I kind of have to be in a, during a pandemic. I'm like, okay, I'm with Big Pharma on this because at least they're being, you know, uh, scrutinized heavily by every health institution, every government health institution on the planet. I mean, those that was unprecedented amount of scrutiny uh, on the COVID vaccines, like really unprecedented. And to claim that there was a conspiracy going on where, you know, I found the whole thing mind-boggling, but there I am. Here I am defending, you know, Pfizer and all of these and Johnson and Johnson. And I don't know how do you? Is there a way that we can shift the debate back towards something more sensible, like, or is that now gone? Uh, I'm trying. I mean, it's part of the media and science literacy projects I'm working on is the creating these short videos, working on this book to be like. If, if we had the lobbying power, and by that I, I don't mean uh, spending in Washington, but I mean the ability to harness the communities that are skeptical of pharmaceutical practices across the bipartisan divide, then we could actually make an impact. Because again, with Bobby Kennedy, I agree that pharma lobbying should be out of Washington. I agree that direct-to-consumer advertising should be done with. Um I don't agree, though, however, with his take on placebo-based uh, placebo trials on vaccinations that have already been approved. So, you know, he has this sleight of hand where he takes very true things, but then he mixes in the anti-vax stuff because he makes millions of dollars a year as a lawyer going out on these vaccine cases. And so it all becomes conflated and very difficult for people to understand that you can produce effective vaccines, which are only one and a half to 4% of your annual profits. And then the very same guy is openly admitting that he's on TRT. And this is also a community that is heavily Botoxed. And at those moments, they have no problems with pharmaceutical companies. And I also guarantee that for a lot of them, if they're in serious pain or have some illness, they'll turn to pharma, which they rightly should at those points. But then they'll they'll criticize to me, which is one of the most basic and fundamental and uh, um, interventions, which are vaccines. And part of the reason that we live as long as we do now is because of these interventions. So it's like the incentives are all perverse. They're perverse on the industry side, but they're also perverse on the side of the people who are trying to sell you other things by being against them. And I'm reading empire of pain by uh, Patrick Radenkeefe right now, which is the history of the Sackler family. One of the worst families probably in American history and what they've done to consumer advertising around pharmaceuticals and the way that they've been positioned in marketing their drugs are horrendous. So if we actually were able to mobilize and speak out against very pointed, specific targets of pharma, we might actually make an impact. But because there's so much division across these, uh, these different entry points into pharmaceuticals and to healthcare in general, it's impossible to actually make any credible headway into into what I think are the real problems, which are having, first of all, a for-profit healthcare system that should be socialized, period.
but you're not finding that. What do you find when you get to Kennedy? He wants the free market to decide well, healthcare, and which is the exact opposite of what would actually help us. Yeah, I kind of see parallels with the 9-11 conspiracy theorists that, you know, what they basically did was to allow a real conspiracy theory go completely sort of unchecked, right, which was the war in Iraq, which was just evidently wrong, illegal, immoral, uh, a grave abuse of power um, and a humanitarian catastrophe. But yet you had conspiracy theorists talking about Building 7 and, you know, whatever it was and, and i remember thinking about it at the time like no 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 you're you're helping you're what you're doing is you're helping the neocons right you don't yep. think you are you think you're a brave truth seeker but you're really not you're chasing you know maybe maybe it's because do you think that because some of these issues are so serious you know like healthcare and privatization of insurance and these issues are so difficult to understand and so serious that maybe conspiracy theories provide that it's like an easy answer that you can just blame Fauci for everything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is where cognitive biases come into play and our brains will conserve energy whenever possible. That is a biological fact for everyone. And so easy answers are always helpful. And so to think about what would have to happen to get lobbyists out of Washington when there are so many moneyed interests tied across parties with this as compared to putting it on Fauci or Gates, which is just seems like such a simple solution. And to say that there's this nefarious network of elites that are running it. And so what we need to do is take down that network instead of understanding the extremely complex network that is called Congress (laughs) to actually get bills passed that would get lobbyists out. It seems virtually impossible to even understand that network, much less actually go forward and make it happen as compared to posting on Twitter, a meme that Bill Gates is the devil and people feel empowered by the latter because understanding much less doing anything about the former is so overwhelming that I don't think it even enters enters people's purview at that point. So Trolling on Twitter, so much easier, makes you feel like you're doing something, justifies some suspicions that you have. And that 9-11 is a perfect example because you're exactly right. But how do you effectively combat what is arguably the most powerful war industry or war vehicle, which is the U.S. Defense Department ever created in the history of humankind? Well, no, let's just talk about conspiracy theories instead. And then you can let your imagination run wild. And effectively, you're not doing anything, but it can at least give you something that you can grasp. Yeah, and and maybe people like RFK Jr. are preying on this instinct that we have or this tendency that we have. Uh, You know, he's recognized that this is a very, very effective way of leveraging himself into the national dialogue by giving people lots of easy answers. You know, everything's to do with, you know, his, wasn't he saying his own voice, the whatever issue he has with his voice, that was to do with big pharma or vaccination. And uh, uh, he says he, he, he does this thing quite often where he'll introduce something and then he'll say, but but we don't know. Right. And that's a common that's a common tactic. 
And so it's uh, spasmodic dysphonia is what he has. And it's, there is no known cause, although um, lung infections or lung problems, uh, sometimes, sometimes too much talking actually can create this. It's a nervous system condition. It's not a vocal cord condition. And so he, what he'll say is it happened shortly after I got a flu vaccine in the 1990s. There's no proof that it's that, but I got the vaccine and then it happened. So it could have been that. And that's basically his stance on it. Where does Donald Trump fit into all of this? Good question. <laughs> I, I, I wish nowhere. Uh, I believe that he was the result of years of nationalistic fervor slash disinformation that had been brewing you can i mean you can argue for generations you can argue it's part of the american experiment but i think it really picked up during obama and he was the result of obama calling him out at the press conference at the you know the journalist dinner and that sort of anger that was fomenting from that moment and there were already so many conspiracy theories about obama i mean just think about the fact that obama made it 8 years as a president without ever having any sort of scandal. There was none. The right. tan suit, right? We point to the tan suit because it's funny because that, like, that's pretty much the most egregious thing. Now, not, I'm not agreeing that I, I actually think he was too cozied up to a lot of businesses and I have problems with some of the policy decisions that he made. But at the same time, he made it through without any family scandals, without any personal baggage. And the results of that is Trump. And what happens then is that you have yet another elite, a billionaire, self-purported, whether or not that's true is another story, who comes out as if he's a defender of the everyman when it's most likely that he hates most people in general. And But the disinformation, the, the sort of gish gallop technique and also the evasion of personal responsibility and always putting it off on someone else, that entered the national consciousness as a, as a credible tactic at that point. And I, I don't see a Bobby Kennedy without a Trump first. And there is some crossover in policy, perhaps, but the crossover is really in technique and mm. the ability for people to believe that these extremely wealthy people from elitist families who have a lot of baggage are defenders of the everyman. And that is the most potent crossover between the two because he's going to play you know he he's going to be the republican nominee for sure so we've got a very interesting 2024 coming up with uh you know rfk jr and donald trump and they they will be dominating the alt political you know media world and um, you know the atlantic just published a an article recently about how the real problem on the democratic side is cornell west and it's just another example of, I think, of these bigger media institutions being like, what are you paying attention to? Right. Like, if you think Cornell West is going to be a problem, are you not? And they, they have published on Bobby Kennedy, but right. I don't think that they're paying enough attention to what's happening through these networks. And, and the whole, the, the number of communities that Kennedy is inspiring right now, like Cornell West is a very specific community that he's involved with. Bobby Kennedy has brought together a lot of different communities. Mm. And the fact that there was that one poll where 
there was more trust in Kennedy than in Biden or Trump overall. Like that's a really powerful signal. I don't think he'll be the nominee, but I think he he is going to create a lot more discord than I think people are ready for. Yeah, I'm not officially worried yet. Um, not officially worried, which means I'm I'm slightly <laughs> I am worried. <laughs> not officially worried yet, but uh, I think that you know you're right that, and I think that you do a brilliant job in the book of outlining how RFK the phenomena you know, emerged, right? I mean, it's almost like the perfect, perfect storm for somebody like RFK to emerge. And the fact that the pandemic has, you know, it's largely, largely, I wouldn't say it's finished, but we're, you know, it's, I think it's an endemic now. We're in an endemic, not a pandemic. So the memories of people being carted off into refrigerators in the street are, you know, pretty much long gone. Uh, And now we can kind of pretend that none of that happened. Um, and that you can go back to bashing vaccines and uh, because they're not so crucial for the survival of millions of people around the world, um, at least for now. Right. Uh, but this this can always change. And the thought of this guy being in charge of the U.S. government and the CDC is a terrifying prospect. And I think that a lot of people haven't really thought about this very hard. I think 2024 will start to see the Democrats kick into gear, really, and start to to, to attack him properly. But we haven't seen that yet. But the way in, also in which it's ingested by alt media channels, uh, they're going to use this as as ammunition and say, you know, look at how the mainstream, they're already doing it. Look at how the mainstream media is attacking RFK. They're twisting his words. And we had this amazing spectacle of uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz repeating RFK's own words back to him. And RFK saying, you're slandering me. You're misrepresenting what I'm saying. I did not say that. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another crossover with Trump, right? That sleight right. of hand, yeah, yeah, right. You can just what you're hearing. What I'm, what you're hearing is not what you're hearing. What you're seeing is not what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Reality is, is what I say it is, and that seems to me the hallmark of a of a conspiritualist. Um, well, look, I I want to end this on on a more of a personal note and and talk a little bit about your own personal spiritual or non spiritual beliefs. Um, do you think that there is room for spirituality or a belief in the influence of the non-material world on this world, if, if that makes sense? <laughs> well, that, that defining that term is its first challenge, right? Because uh, Franz DeWall writes about this in, in one of his books about having attended uh, a forum of all religious scholars and academics and leaders. And at the very first talk, half of the people walked out of the room because they couldn't define religion in the first place. They couldn't come to a common understanding. So when I hear the term spirituality, I'm, I'm immediately like, it's such a vague term that people use in so many different ways that it, it's very hard to define. Uh, you bring up non-material. I, I think, I think consciousness is an emergent phenomenon, meaning it comes from the biological processes of, of what we are as a species. So I'm not a dualist. Uh, that doesn't mean that, I don't think there's plenty we don't understand. I don't think there's there's room for a lot of mystery and there probably will be things that we never understand and I'm okay with that. But I don't think it, they come from non-material external sources. Uh, so let's take an example of that. So one of the big things that you know is in the community for a long time that has 
crept up in different ways is the secret, which really comes from the law of attraction, which comes from a course of miracles. It's this very often repeated idea that your thoughts create reality. And if your reality is not what you want, then you're not thinking the right way, which creates all sorts of guilt, which then opens up for influencers to come in to sell people products, right? So that's, that's a very common downline that we see. Now, McLuhan writes in Understanding Media, you become what you behold. And that's actually something I think has a lot of utility, which sounds very similar. And it's just this, where you place your attention and how you perceive reality will in part create reality because that's what you're focusing on. I don't think there's anything mystical about that. I think if you start to focus on something, then you start to take the steps to understanding it. And then you start to perceive reality through the lens of that ideology. I mean, that's what all religions basically do, right? If you think that everything comes back to Jesus Christ, then everything you see is going to be a mark of that figure or that symbol. Same in Islam, same in Buddhism. It's, it's, it's this process by which you define your reality by the guardrails that you put on yourself. I get lost in that ideology when you think there's this sort of conspiracy of forces that if you think something, it's magically going to manifest. So to me, having studied religion academically and, and personally, I landed on Buddhism because I not, not, I'm not a Buddhist, but I think that the mindset taken by that particular uh, philosophy best encapsulates what we are as a species. And it's very simple. We suffer because we think that reality isn't what it should be. So dukkha is this idea that um, misperception, it's often called suffering, but misperceiving reality. So that I think reality should be this. When it shows itself not to be that, I am afflicted because my perception was wrong. So what are you doing in Buddhism? You're trying to fix your perception you're not trying to fix the external circumstances because they're beyond you. You're trying to fix your own perception and your own responses to what happens to you, which I personally think is a very healthy way of living. Oh, this didn't work out. Okay. It might not have been this mystical force that caused it not to work out. It doesn't mean it's where I'm meant to be. It's like, here's the situation. How am I going to move on from here? And I found that psychologically and emotionally a much better way of looking at things than thinking that there's these forces that are happening out there that are putting me in places that I'm meant to be at. And if something doesn't work out, then that's either on me or it's on that external thing. And I know it gets very didactic at these points, but I think developing a healthy relationship to failure and a healthy relationship to success. And then just keeping your eye on what you're going for and trying to trudge through all that is a healthier way of living than thinking that there are all of these disembodied forces out there that are constructing your reality. Because at the end of the day, that gets very egotistical to me. It's like thinking that this billions of years of evolution have all been creating this force that is me. Like when I hear those sorts of ideas, I'm like, that, that, that is a really egotistical way of thinking about reality. Uh, understanding yourself as a part of a force 
that has existed and will continue to exist. Who knows how much longer <laughs> for our species, at least, but we're still here. Uh, and, and trying to suss through that is, is a much better way. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but that's kind of where I land when I hear such a question. Yeah, so it seems kind of embracing uncertainty as a kind of a philosophical principle or perhaps a, an antidote or, or a, a healthier egoic or to have more, uh, you know, fostering a healthier ego, which it seems to be a lot of what you guys write about are massive egoic distortions. Um, yeah. You know, within, with these influences and people who are very susceptible to that stuff. Um, and, and finally, what would you say would be a very, like two or three ways in which you can inoculate yourself from this stuff or, you feel or you see someone going down this rabbit hole how could you help them or potentially help yourself well let's start with helping yourself uh first because i think that one is a little more manageable it's always hard to to work with other people uh the biggest red flag to me is always when someone makes uh very big promises uh if they're saying that these institutions have failed you but i have the answer in some capacity then that is the biggest red flag uh, because the idea that teams of experts from around the world have failed, but I have found the truth like that, that never leads anywhere good. So always watch out for the promises of other people. If someone's saying, Hey, I found this thing and it worked for me. And it seems like it helps some other people. doesn't work for everyone, but give it a shot. I think that's much healthier way of approaching it than, than saying that I found the response. Uh, in terms of helping other people, it's something I'm, I'm trying to suss out and work through, you know, even as I work on this new project and book, because it's difficult because, because of the distrust in experts and institutions. Um, but I still do believe that providing good information is a check on bad information. So, if you're able to confirm people's suspicions, like someone's like all pharma is corrupt. And then we have a conversation like we did could be shorter, <laughs> but you know, if you're in these situations with people, but be like, yeah, I got screwed over by pharma. They did this, but I still think they have some merit over here. Like, because one of the biggest things that you see in, in especially in these online spaces, is just this, this headbutting that happens, and it's not a binary. You can have distrust of an institution, but still understand that there's some value there. So, if you're able to confirm someone's suspicions, but also then add that, but also <laughs> to the conversation, then you actually can help someone out. But if someone is like expressing distrust, and your immediate response is like know you're wrong, then they're going to close down. And then it makes, it makes further conversation impossible. So those, those two things, watching out for the, the people who are selling a solution to everything and to be able to actually engage in a conversation and not just a debate with someone right off the bat, I think are two techniques that are generally helpful. I'll go one step further and say that you should buy a copy of Conspirituality <laughs> and subscribe to the podcast. And I, 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 I say that in jest, but, but I'm serious. It, it is a fantastic book. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, everyone listening, please do so. I'll put all the links um, in my Substack and the newsletter. Uh, and Derek, is there where can people find you specifically? I'm going to put all the links in as well, but if you want to 
uh, if people are just listening in the car, where can they find you? Uh, DerekBarris.com has links uh, to every project that I'm involved with and everything that I want to be able to share with people. So that would be the best place. Okay. Um, Derek, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It was great talking.